right, let me get my ducks in a row here. All right, so we are in Isaiah chapter 9, and um, the outline that has been handed out and that has been posted on our podcast site, um, uh, we're a little behind on that. We won't quite catch up to that today. Uh, We're supposed to cover through, I think, um, chapter 11 today, but I think we'll just get into the first part of chapter 10, so uh, mostly chapter 9 today. So um, as we left off in chapter 8, things were not looking so well. Uh, The situation was rather dire, and we find that rather than listen to the prophets and to the testimony of the Word of God, uh, the people were looking almost anywhere else and everywhere else for advice and so forth, even to the extreme of consulting uh, mediums, consulting the dead to see what advice they might have, which, if you think about it, is kind of odd, right? I mean, it didn't work out so well for those folks. So, anyway. Uh, This gives us a real picture of the darkness of what was going on. And we see that in verse 20 of chapter, or I guess verse 19 of chapter 8, where it says, And when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? And then in verse 21, it says, And they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Things are not looking good. Well, as we've seen in Isaiah, there's this constant back and forth. There's darkness and judgment and a description of just how bad things are. And then there's an injection of hope. And that's where we start in chapter 9 today with this little refresher, this little oasis of hope that we get to see. There'll be some familiar verses here uh, to most of you. So beginning in verse 1, it says, But... There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So, familiar verse, especially... The last one, and of course, we we recognize that as uh, referring to Jesus. Now, this region of Naphtali and Zebulun was in the, the northern part of Israel. So, we've talked about southern kingdoms, which is primarily who Isaiah is prophesying to. We've talked about Israel, meaning the northern kingdoms, kingdom rather. And Zebulun and Naphtali is definitely in the northern part. It's not uncommon for Isaiah to refer to the northern kingdom kind of as an example of how God is already dealing with part of the nation and kind of using them as an object lesson of what might befall the southern kingdom. In any event, this land of Naphtali and Zebulon was at the extreme and it was part of the trade route so that 
as uh, caravans and so forth would want to go down to Egypt, they would swing to the north, across the top of the, of the nation there, and then along the coast and head on down to Egypt. That's this, this way of the sea that it's referring to. Well, if we flip over to Matthew chapter 4, we'll see the direct connection that is made by Matthew with Jesus. You go to Matthew chapter 4, beginning, let's see, beginning in verse 12, I guess. It says, Now when he heard, that is Jesus, when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. Now we heard a lot about Capernaum when we studied in Mark, right? He settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land of the and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, this, uh, this area that had received the brunt of the Assyrian invasion, uh, that was definitely in darkness, it was to that region that received most of Jesus' ministry while he was here on earth. And again, a fulfillment of, of that prophecy, and um, uh, just a, a, a great connection showing that that there is there is hope here. There is hope um, for the people. Beginning in verse three, and on down through verse five, we have a look not just to the the first coming of Christ. But probably here the, the prophet is looking ahead to perhaps the second coming of Christ. So in verse 3 it says, Thou shalt multiply the nation, thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. The battle of Midian was a, was a victory. And... Uh, uh, so here we have a picture that that you know you're breaking the yoke and and there's rejoicing and in verse five it says for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be f for burning the fuel for the fire there's going to be an end to battle and end to uh, the military military action so this refers to the ultimate release and the restoration of God's people and. Considering that it, it looks like war is done, then this is probably referring to the second coming of Christ and that time of peace in the millennial kingdom as, as uh, the commentators that I was reading uh, suggest. Back to verse 6, we have um, both the first and the second coming of Christ all in view here. Again, familiar verses. 
For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So here we have Messiah. We have Messiah. A, cho- a child will be born to us. So this, you'll remember this is uh, what the third time we've heard about the significance of a child being born and ushering in this new era and a son will be given. So again, you can kind of see without looking too hard of both the humanity of Christ, a child uh, being born, and the divinity. A, A son, already a son, before the virgin birth, already a son given to us. And then we see these names that could only fit upon Jesus. Um, wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Um, I forget the reference, but um, one commentator made the point that um, in the old in the Older Testament, I think it was maybe in Genesis, where um, we have uh, Jesus being manifested as um, the Captain of the Lord of Hosts, as he's called, and and they asked for the name, and it says. Um, why do you want to know my name? Because it is wonderful. Uh, and it's the same word, uh, wonderful. Uh, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Uh, eternal Father. Now, don't let Eternal Father, don't let that trip you up, right? So, uh, certainly we believe there is one God. Manifested in our human minds, we say in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So, it says eternal Father, and we think this is talking about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Is he the Son or is he the Father? Well, don't get tripped up on that. The, the key for this is uh, the, the phrase eternal Father is really referring to the eternity of Christ and, and the, as being present throughout time. That's really the focus. So don't get hung up on the Father part. And then, of course, Prince of Peace, which will be in the um, uh, where we'll get the first glance of uh, first glimpse rather of eternal peace in the millennial kingdom. Um, so we've had our we've had our bit of hope there. Uh, and one one final phrase, I guess, just to highlight it says, "The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this." Um, the point here is that. This is, this is initiated by God, right? Uh, this isn't something that we make happen. This isn't something that is dependent on us. God is initiating this. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God's going to make all this happen. So we can trust it, we can count on it, we can believe it. All right, so things get more serious now. Beginning with verse 8, and we'll wrap up with verse 4 of chapter 10, are four sections where there are specific uh, 
sins, you might say, or grievances of the people that are being called out by the prophet. So to tune your ears as we read this first one, the focus here is on pride and arrogance. Pride and arrogance from 8 through verse 12. It says in verse 8, The Lord sends a message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel. All the people know it. Latter part of verse 9, Asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we'll replace them with cedars. The point here is that they're saying, yeah, things are, things, things are going bad, but we can do this. We got this. We can fix this. We can, we can make it even better. We don't really need outside help. We don't need God's help on this. Uh, we, can, we can fix all this. We got this. And so the sin there is, is pride and, and arrogance of heart, he says. And, and he, God says, you know, I'm really not impressed with that. Uh, and, and so much so that uh, it says in verse 12, the Arameans on the east, the Philistines on the west, they will devour Israel with gaping jaws. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still outstretched. So even as these armies are coming to do their worst, God's saying, and, I, and I'm still not done with you. I'm still not done with you. Pride and arrogance. Next section, verse 13 through verse 17. And the focus here is the trust we put sometimes inappropriately in our leaders. Or what one commentator says, the, the sin of adulation of great men. Verse 13, it says, The people do not turn back to him who struck them. In other words, God is bringing punishment so that he can get their attention so that they can turn back to God. And it says, no, they don't do that. Nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So, verse 14, the Lord cuts off the head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in a single day. The head is the elder and honorable man and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tale. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. The leadership is corrupt. The leadership is leading the people astray, and the people are elevating these leaders. They're putting their trust in them. Again, Verse 17, it says, the Lord does not take pleasure in this situation. And again, the latter part of 17, in spite of all this, his anger doesn't turn away. His hand is still outstretched. Still there's judgment. Verses 18 through 21, one commentator calls this the sin of a lack of brotherly love, which I... I think is a little odd. I'm calling it the every man for himself passage. Verse 18, For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns and even sets the thickets of the forest aflame and they roll upward in a column of smoke. But the fury of the Lord of hosts, by, I'm sorry, by the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land 
is burned up and the people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. They slice, slice off what is on the right hand but are still hungry. They eat what is on the left hand but are still not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own. Brother against brother, family member against family member, everybody is looking out for their own. It's selfishness. It's a total loss of community, a totally loss, a total loss of the uh, this you know, common heritage that they have, the, the common ancestry, the common God that they have, all of that is out the window. It's every person for themselves. And again, we have that refrain at the end of verse 21. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. There's still judgment. And then... In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10, the sin of social injustice. It says, Woe to those who enact civil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights in order that their widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Verse 4, nothing remains but the crouch among the captives or small fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. A harsh word for those that would stand in the way of social justice. Isaiah says, there's no hope for you in that way. Sobering passage, right? Pride and arrogance. Putting your faith in corrupt leaders. Selfishness. Every man for himself. The loss of the social fabric. And then the injustice to those who need justice the most. Things are not going well. And Isaiah is laying out section after section after section, these are the things that God is not happy with. So, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? So we're going to have a little time here. So what do we learn about man in this passage? What's the picture here? Sounds pretty familiar with today's society. So, sounds pretty familiar as today's society. So man hasn't changed that much, has it? What else? He's warning them then and he's warning us now as we read it. There's a warning for certain sins back then and it makes you wonder is this a warning for us now? Exactly, Phil. Um, same God. Same problems. Would we not expect the same kind of response? You know, obviously we live you know, in the, the days of grace and, and we're happy about that but I don't think we should be overly secure in that. 
God can still bring pressure to bear where pressure is needed. Absolutely, I totally agree with that. What else? We still think we don't need God. <laughs> we still think we don't need God. That is so true, and are we just that stupid? <laughs> you know, why is that? Why is that? Even, even those of, that, like us that love God, we still don't depend on Him totally, even though we know we should. Even though we know we should depend on God, we don't. We take God for granted. I think we lean on that grace a little too much. Yeah. You know, something happened to me this week as far as uh, dealing with what everybody's talking about. Is, you know, you depend on God at times, but then it's not like you try to do it yourself, but you just don't be asking God this and do it, doing it your way. Don't ask Him, just go doing it your way. And I... It is burden on me because I thought I was wrong. Once I realized what I was doing, I said, that's wrong. You know, supposed to be dependent on God to do wrong. Exactly. And I think, you know, all of us, certainly, I hope I'm not the only one, all of us um, recognize that that when we do start to feel a little out of control. When circumstances aren't going so right, correctly, we should turn our eyes even closer to God and reconnect with Him as our loving Father and see Him as the source of our rescue and the source of our strength. And to the Christian who's walking closely with the Lord, it just takes a little nudge, right? It just takes a little nudge, you know, to... All right, come on. Yeah, I'm sorry, Lord. I, I'm I'm back. But the further you wander off, that little nudge might need to be a little bit more forceful to get your attention. And um, I think we see that in this in this passage. But he knows though, right? Say that. He, he knows that we will stray off sometimes. <laughs> he, he he does. He knows that we're going to stray off. You know. Um, I've said it many times, you know, Christians still need Jesus, right? We still need Jesus. We still need to confess our sin. We still need to walk closely with him and see him as a source of our help. And, you know, it all comes back to the heart, right? The behaviors of these people reflected where their heart was. And the, the... attitudes, the pride, the arrogance, the false worship, the selfishness, the social injustice, those were, that's the the summation, so to speak, of where their heart was. Uh, In the, the flip side, as a Christian, behavior should flow from your heart in a good way. Um, we see this, I think, especially illustrated in our, this last section on social injustice. Woe to those who enact civil statutes, to those who constantly record unjust decisions. Daddy led off with that this morning about the critical nature of what happens in our courts. What he didn't talk to was, about was this gap. When was the 14th Amendment passed? 
1886. How long did it take for the full social justice to come about? Tomorrow we honor right, rightly Dr. Martin Luther King, who within just the decades was working to complete something that should have been wrapped up in 1888 or whatever it was. Martin Luther King Jr., of course, is rightly seen as a civil rights activist, but you can't disconnect what he did from his theology. Before he ever did this, he was a preacher, and a preacher throughout his life. And you can't, you can't be a true Christian and just have your Christianity stay here. And I think that's what he was calling out. Dr. King was calling out. There's more to it. A couple of quotes. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. He also said law and order exist for the purpose of establishing, establishing justice and when they fail in this purpose, they become dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. What was God's pronouncement? Woe to those who enact civil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions. You know, there are some denominations that are known as uh, social denominations uh, or social justice. Or they're known for their outreach. Um, for some reason, there has been a uh, this divide that a lot of the, historically, this may be changing some now, but a lot of times some of the Denominations that were known for their outreach were not the same ones that were known for uh, being true to the Bible, and vice versa. Some of the denominations that are so strict about the Bible are the ones that are the least involved in the community. That's not right. James one twenty seven. you guys are very familiar with. He brings it down and puts it right in our lap. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, keep oneself unstained by the world. We are called to be salt and light, right? We're not supposed to hide our light under a bushel, right? We're supposed to be in the world helping to bring justice, to the people that need it. All right, real quickly. What do we learn about God in this passage? I think you guys have touched on this. Um, I put God is so consistent. The same things he cares about in Isaiah's day are the same things he cares about in the days of the New Testament and the same thing he cares about now. Proper faith resulting in proper action. 
Finally, reflecting back to that section on hope, God is so personal. He comes to our world. He is involved in our world. Very involved in Isaiah's world. Lots of stuff happening. Still involved today, maybe in a different way. The Holy Spirit's here now. We don't see it as visibly at much, but we have a personal God. A lot of people don't have a personal God. They don't have a God who cares about anything. The most rapidly growing faith in the world, you may have never heard of, the Baha'i faith. Ever heard of the Baha'i faith? The Baha'i faith believes that uh, Muhammad and Buddha and Jesus are just a series of messengers from God who created everything but doesn't interact with people. You can't know this God. You can't relate to this God. Obviously, that's not the God that we serve. We have a very personal God who injects himself into us like a good daddy to spank us when we need it, to encourage us to live out our faith. We better quit. Thank you for helping to teach today. Father, thank you for all that you've done through history and even to today to remind us who you are and remind us of the things that you care about and to empower us to be your hands and feet through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you for Jesus that we can come to you through him. In his name I pray, amen.